Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to be with you today. When I was a boy, living in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, my mom and dad used to take my sister and I to Rehoboth Beach, Delaware for a week-long summer vacation. Like most kids, we had a great time enjoying the sand and the surf, and we were never at a loss for things to do. One day we climbed in the car and headed south on Delaware Route 1 to Indian River Inlet, and while we were on the way, Dad shared the story of Coin Beach with us, which is one of a number of beaches in Delaware that has become known for finding coins from shipwrecks. And make no mistake, there were a lot of shipwrecks off the southern Delaware coast. Why there, you ask? A lot of ships entered the Delaware Bay bound for Philadelphia. It was the only way to get there from the Atlantic. And if you were a pirate, Philadelphia was a good place to sell booty, for the Quaker merchants asked no questions and told no tales. This much I learned doing research for our story on Blackbeard, who had said as much about Philadelphia and made frequent visits there not only to buy needed goods and sell captured booty, but to see a special Dutch girlfriend who lived up the bay near Wilmington, outside of Philadelphia. Coin Beach got its name thanks to the wreck of the Faithful Steward, which sank in shallow water near Indian River Inlet in 1785, and has given up so many coins that the nearby stretch of sand is called, appropriately, Coin Beach. The faithful steward sank on September 2, 1785, with 400 barrels of coins. Each of its 400 barrels is estimated to have contained 140,000 to 190,000 coins, and most of it has never been found. The faithful steward wrecked just north of the Indian River Inlet. On board were 249 passengers traveling from Londonderry, Ireland, to Philadelphia, PA, along with 400 barrels of Irish half-pennies and guineas. At this time, America was not minting its own currency. Instead, currency had to be imported and used. This wreck predated the U.S. Life-Saving Service by nearly 100 years, and as a result, only seven of the 100 women and children aboard survived. Also lost to the sea were all 400 barrels of currency. Until the mid-20th century, beachcombers in the area could easily find those 200-year-old coins washed up after storms, nicknaming the area Coin Beach. Today, coins are rarely found, but when they are, it's usually after nor'easters or other strong storms, and with the use of metal detectors. When we arrived there early in the morning, I saw some men using metal detectors and had the opportunity to ask them what they'd found. In those days, the popular item was beer can tabs the careless beachgoers had left behind on the beach, and the treasure hunters were saving a lot of cut feet by removing these. Sometimes, they said, they would find modern-day rings and coins, and even keys. And every now and then they would find old Irish haypennies from the wreck of the faithful steward, and sometimes rose-colored guineas. And, and even more rarely, pieces of eight. Pieces of eight date back as far as the 16th century. A piece of eight is a Spanish dollar. 
They were minted for a long time in the Spanish Empire after about 1497. Pieces of eight were the starting point of many a legend and a great story, as in Treasure Island, which we did over at 1001 Stories for the Road, chapter by chapter, and it's there still for your enjoyment. We didn't find any old coins that day, but I left there with a much greater treasure, that being the unquenchable desire to know more about legends, history, and mysteries. And it's one of those legends that I'm going to share with you today, the legend of Delaware's haunted shipwreck, the wreck of the HMS Debrecq. It may or may not have been haunted, but it certainly brought heartache and financial disaster to many of its searchers, and the bulk of its treasure, if it ever had one, has never been found. Only some gold coins that occasionally wash up to remind us that there are some mysteries that will never be discovered. The wreck of the HMS Debrac was and is the most sought after, most talked about, and very possibly richest shipwreck off the Delaware coast. Its prized treasures are reputed to be awe-inspiring, consisting of gold, silver, coins, diamonds, and precious metals. Much of that treasure has never been found, although they did find the wreck, and we'll get to that later in this story. It's time to settle back, grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink, and listen to a great story. Thomas Sharp, in his History of Delaware, written over a century ago, described it this way. The 125-foot main deck of the two-masted brig was stacked high with plundered cargo, and her holds were bloated with much more. She was top-heavy, with 16 24-pound deck guns, and she went down in a gale just off Cape Henlopen on May 25, 1798. She began her career as a single-masted sailing vessel in the Netherlands around the year 1781. Her name, Debrac, means Beagle. The Dutch were known to name their sailing ships after dogs, and she was short and fast, which earned her the name the Beagle. In 1793, she was signed to sail with a Dutch squadron defending the coastal city of Williamstad during hostilities with France. And what hostilities those were? This was called the Flanders Campaign, and make a note that this was all part of the French Revolution, all of which took place in the years after France helped America to gain its freedom during our American Revolution. After helping us gain our freedom, France wanted some of her own, mainly freedom from a Catholic monarchy. This didn't help the French when it came to their relationships with Britain and all of France's border countries, and she was left fighting the Dutch, Great Britain, the Holy Roman Empire, Austria, Hanover, and Prussia. But she did end up winning it. So whatever you think of France's fighting abilities, she was no slouch by the turn of the 18th century. After the Dutch action, she was assigned to escort a merchant convoy to the West Indies, and while on her way, put in at the English port of Plymouth, where she planned to take on supplies before heading south. Unfortunately, she arrived there just when the Dutch declared war on Britain. Obviously, allegiances were built on shifting sand back then, and the British Navy confiscated the Debrac and a few other Dutch vessels. In Plymouth, she was refitted with a second mast, making her two-masted square rigger, and they rebuilt her to satisfy the needs of the British Navy, including the addition of small but deadly cannons which fired larger balls, which, with twice the sails, making the Debrac an extremely fast and well-armed naval ship. And by the way, if you think piracy died with Blackbeard in 1718, think again. With many of the independent operators gone, piracy now was being state-sponsored. 
that Debrack took on a new captain, and his name was James Drew. He was rumored to be a disreputable guy, for in those times he had fathered an illegitimate child and left the mother to run off with a wealthy American girl. That cost him the captaincy of one British ship, so when he landed this new gig on the Debrack, he felt he had something to prove. He was master and commander when the Debrack was ordered to join a 44-ship convoy across the Atlantic along with the St. Albans, but they hit a long patch of storms out in the mid-Atlantic, and the HMS Debrack found herself on her own. Drew was carrying a letter of marquee and reprisal, giving him permission to capture any ship of the enemy, and just about every wealthy country was an enemy of the British then, from Spain to France. Some accounts say that it wasn't storms that caused Drew to depart the convoy. It was the sails of Spanish ships on the horizon that proved too tempting to pass up, and he headed for them. Others say that while still with the squadron, he was ordered to fend off a French privateer, and while involved in that action, a storm sprang up, separating him from the fleet. At any rate, he was gone for seven weeks. It's rumored that during this time he ventured into the Caribbean and robbed a military payroll consisting of gold and silver, and that during those weeks they took many more ships, including English merchant vessels, which they plundered and then sunk, leaving no witnesses. These were likely just tall tales, but after the Debrac sank, which we'll get to in just a few paragraphs, the few survivors entertained their rescuers with seemingly limitless gold coins and tales. During this seven weeks' time, Drew did capture a Spanish ship called the Don Francisco Javier, which was headed for Cadiz with a South American cargo valued at 160,000 sterling. This undoubtedly put a feather in Drew's cap, and in his mind, at least, would go a long way toward restoring his reputation. He captured the Javier and towed it toward the Delaware Bay, which was the fleet's original destination, on May 25, 1798. It was later discovered that the fleet he was supposed to meet had left the bay only hours before. While they were headed north, he was coming in from the south and didn't see them. A pilot boatmaster named Andrew Allen hailed him and boarded the Debrac, meeting with what appeared to be a captain and crew that was pretty well intoxicated, having decided to celebrate their success as they entered the assumed safety of the bay. There are two sides to this story. One says that Drew refused the pilot boat and sent Allen on his way and he was glad to go because he could see a storm was coming and he needed to get to his own boat and make it ready to face it. The second lists Allen as a survivor of the capsized Debrac. There were two dozen survivors, including several Spaniards who had been captured, some of the crewmen, and the pilot Allen. That storm appeared quickly, bringing with it high winds, waves, and driving rain, and a sudden gust that toppled the top-heavy Debrac. Some of the crew was able to make it to the Spanish ship they were towing, but Captain Drew... Most of their mates, and most of the prisoners they had taken, were pulled under the now high waves of the Delaware Bay. The paymaster from the Debrac, Thomas Griffiths, was on board the Xavier, which survived the storm. He had been left on board with instructions to take the ship to Cape Henry, Virginia, and turn it into British authorities if for any reason something like this should happen. After the storm subsided, the British consul in Philadelphia was informed of the disaster, including the loss of lives of Captain Drew and 46 others. In the days following the wreck, rumors began to circulate about certain survivors of the Debrac taking up residence in nearby ports and paying for their rent and food with gold doubloons. They were also talking about a sizable treasure on board the Debrac that was ripe for the taking, the problem being how to get it. Regardless of the fact that the tops of the masts had been visible for a while, the ship was in a deep portion of the bay. When it was rediscovered, the hull was 90 feet below the surface. In the hours and days following the wreck, 
Bodies and refuse from the ship began to wash up on the shoreline. Some of these items can still be seen in local museums today, one being an oak and mahogany sea chest that belonged to Captain Drew. One story claims that two or three of the Spanish prisoners that survived grabbed hold of this chest and floated to shore with it. It's on display today at the Zwanendale Museum in Lewis, Delaware. Some researchers believe that if there was any treasure, it sailed away on the captured Spanish vessel. But it was being towed, and many things can happen to a towed ship, including having pirates cutting the lines at night and taking over the thinly manned ship. It would have been much safer to load the treasure on board the Debrac, which had a full-armed crew. Meanwhile, the British consul in Philadelphia was informed of the disaster, and in September they sent two salvage brigs, the Hind and the Vixen, to raise the sunken frigate. This raised a number of eyebrows, as the now sunken ship was fairly small and would never be fully seaworthy again, at least not for the purposes of the British Navy. And they didn't haul up the cannons, items which to them would have been extremely valuable. And we know that because they were found fairly recently. Due to the depth of the wreck and the fact that it was filling up quickly with sand, they couldn't bring her up. After the salvage attempts, her masts were visible above the water. This was the bay, not the ocean, and the wreck was located less than a mile off Cape Henlope in Delaware. The British ended up writing it off as a total loss, and over 30 attempts were made to raise it, all of them failing until the 1980s. The British gave it two more tries, one in 1799 and another in 1814, but again with no luck. By 1799, the masts had disappeared, and the swift currents in that part of the bay had covered the wreck with sand, so that it was not visible to divers attempting to locate it. In 1805, another pilot named Gilbert McCracken, who had been a close friend of Pilot Allen, found a mound of sand at the location he was sure was that of the wreck. He had found it by bottom dragging, knowing that the bay had a relatively flat bottom, and that any sudden obstacle found, or any sudden change in bottom depth, might mean the presence of a wreck. He combined that with dead reckoning from the Henlopen Lighthouse and other features to arrive at a mappable location, and it was his findings that enabled salvagers in later years to find the wreck. As the years went by, legends began to grow, and the desire to recover what many believed was a huge treasure grew. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price, and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. And now, back to our story. By 1878, salvage equipment and technology began to improve. The race to bring up the Debrac intensified. Money was raised by investors and poured into an organization called the Pan Coast Expeditions, which tried to raise the wreck but couldn't. Two years later, another organization called East Coast Submarine tried and failed again. By now the wreck had been buried and was impossible to find. During World War I, however, as ships of the U.S. Navy began to drag the channel at the entrance to the Delaware Bay for German mines, they discovered a cannon that researchers believed had belonged to the Debrac. But nothing else was found. All traces of the Debrac remained hidden. It was almost as if the ship didn't want to be found. It was in 1932 that some strange disasters began to befall those who were still seeking the wreckage. On September 29th of that year, 
the sweeper boat Katie Derm, owned by the Baltimore Derrick and Salvaging Company, was dragging the bottom off Cape Henlopen for signs of the debrac. Nearby, another salvage effort was underway trying to raise a sunken derrick off the Brandywine Shoals. The divers working off the Katie Derm had found some promising leads, and by nightfall, everyone on board was excited to see what the next day might bring. The crew settled in for the night, but sometime during the night an oil lamp inexplicably fell on the oil-slick deck and set the ship ablaze. The crew frantically tried to put out the fire, but couldn't, and the men had to abandon ship after wiring for help. They were rescued by a sister ship of the Katie Durham called the Cap. The crew survived, but the ship and all its diving equipment sank. The Cap took the crew to Lewis, where one of them was treated for burns. Only two weeks later, the Cap struck the P-Pitch Island dike near Delaware City and sank. There were only two crewmen aboard, and they managed to wade to an island, but the Cap was lost. It wasn't until the 1980s and the development of side-scan technology that the hunt for the Debrac heated up again. The 38-foot boat Seneca, formerly a fishing boat, and captained by Donnie Evans of Lewis, Delaware, was retrofitted and packed with the latest sonar imagery devices along with technicians and divers in an attempt to find the Debrac. The Seneca would actually be towing the side scanner and acting as a survey vessel. All this was financed by a group called SubSal, headed by Harvey L. Harrington, who had been a career commercial diver for the past 30 years. They set sail on April 15th, 1984, with high hopes of finding the Debrac and eventually raising it. During the next two weeks, they were sure they were on top of it, and more divers were brought on to work. Behind them came historians, photographers, and underwater preservation specialists. The current laden waters off Henlopen had reduced the wreck portions to practically nothing. Only the keel remained intact, and that just barely. Other portions of the wreck were scattered about at 80 feet of depth. Dozens of dives were made, and by July of 1984, Harrington announced that they had found the wreck of the Debrac. Artifacts began to arrive at the surface, where the excitement was palpable. A small iron cannon came up, then bottles, then fragments of sail canvas. In September of 1984, a gold ring was discovered, and on it read, In memory of my beloved brother, Captain John Drew. The ring had belonged to the captain of the Debrac, James Drew. He had purchased the mourning ring in memory of his twin brother John, whose ship he captained was sunk in a sea battle five months before the sinking of the Debrac. As gold fever began to grow aboard the research vessel, and as the media stories increased, a net of government regulation and compliance began to tighten around the investors. In all fairness, the government wanted to make sure that the salvage operation would be conducted in a manner that respected the historical magnitude of finding a late 18th century British war frigate. Subsell CEO Harrington arranged for suitable storage and workspace in Lewis, and he promised strict adherence to all precautions that would prevent the wreck from being desecrated. In a 1985 press release, he informed the public that their immediate goal was the recovery and preservation of the Debrac artifacts using precise archaeological methods. At the time this statement was released, the critics were beating down his doors, and the state of Delaware was demanding 25% of the net profits from the take. They also demanded comprehensive inventory and charting of every single item removed from the wreck. As the winter of 84 approached, the work slowly ground to a stop, and the divers began to complain that their checks weren't forthcoming. At the same time, Harrington, in an effort to find the treasure which could pay his men, was trying to fight a legal challenge to his announced plans that he wanted to use explosives to shake the debrac from its resting place so he could get at its contents. 
Subsal's lawyers were told that TNT could only be used with court approval and approval from the Environmental Department. At the same time, a Rhode Island salvage company claimed that Harrington had stolen data regarding the wreck site, or at least received it without proper authentication. It was like a pack of wolves descending upon a wounded bull elk. This and more went on through and past the winter, and now valuable digging time was lost in the first half of 1985. Harrington's permit to salvage the Debrac was strongly contested in court, and in a unique legal move, Subsal's lawyers convinced the U.S. District Court to have the ship arrested. A court-instructed diver descended to the wreck in July of 85 and attached a watertight envelope to one of the cannons sitting in the underwater rubble. Now the Debrac was under the custody of the court, and Subsal was free to stake its claim on it. The claim was made public in a courthouse news conference two days later. For one brief moment, at least, Harvey Harrington and Subsal had a chance to celebrate, but it was short-lived. A company called Worldwide Savage, formed by some of the men who claimed to have helped Harrington locate the Debrac, sued Subsat and went public with some stiff accusations against Harrington, one big one being that he had salted the wreckage, meaning in this version of the word that they were secretly removing and cleaning various valuable artifacts before replacing them back on the ocean floor for photographers and journalists to see. That doesn't seem nearly as bad as the other definition of salting, which we witnessed in our episodes dealing with Oak Island, where at least one of the search companies there was accused of salting the well there with relics that weren't from that site at all. That was done, ostensibly, to bring in new investors. Harrington was also charged by Worldwide Salvage with lax security at the relic storage site, which was located within an old fish factory in Lewis, while possibly keeping some found relics for himself. The suit was a nasty one, and designed to tie up Harrington's funds and time as he fought the legal battle. During this time, Harrington received a death threat and had to deal with rumors that the Mafia was trying to take over his salvage effort. Harrington's grip on the wreck was weakening with all this pressure. At the lowest point of this mess, a former Air Force officer and treasure hunter turned real estate developer, whose name was L. John Davidson, stopped in to see if he could help, and perhaps profit. Davidson met with Harrington in Lewis, and they got along well enough that Davidson bought out two of Harrington's partners and paid off all of Harrington's outstanding debts. Davidson then signed Harrington as the director of salvage and diving, bought a stern trawler, and set out to get all he could from the Debrac. For a while, the recovery looked promising. More than 3,500 artifacts were rescued from the wreck during 11 weeks of diving in 1985, but still no treasure was discovered. The relationship between Harrington and Davidson quickly boiled over, and by the time Davidson announced that they were going to bring up the ship, or at least a good part of the keel, Harrington wasn't even allowed back on the site. On August 11, 1986, dozens of small boats and one larger boat holding the press corps, along with hundreds of bystanders watching from nearby beaches, all watched a tug towing a barge with a crane on top pull a piece of the debrac to the surface. A steel sling had been placed under the keel of the debrac's remains. They did all the work hooking it up early in the day. Subsell had announced that the removal of the debrac keel would be a slow process, that the handling of the process would be delicate, and that all accepted underwater procedures would be followed. And no doubt there were hundreds of guidelines given to the salvagers. But the process was even slower than expected. Roadblocks to progress appeared in the form of equipment failures. By 9 p.m. that night, it was full dark. All but a few of the watchers, except the official ones, had left, and the big crane began cranking the remnants of the debrac to the surface. But it all happened way too fast. 
Some steel cables did cut through the rotted wooden beams of the keel, and hundreds of relics rolled away and back into the deep silt and mud. Barrels, cannonballs, and more plunked back into the sea once the keel portion came out of the water. A host of archaeologists, historians, environmental and God knows what other people, present, began voicing their dismay to anyone who would listen. And to be fair, they had a point. For example, picture this. A clamshell bucket was used to dump the ship's contents into a rock sorter, which was then used to sift for treasure. The clamor went all the way to the White House. The recovery had been admittedly amateurish. This was the event that drove the president of the National Trust for Historic Preservation to introduce legislation to protect shipwrecks by giving states legal titles to any wreck within three miles of their shoreline. This still stands as the Abandoned Shipwrecks Act of 1985. There was a positive note to all this. The state of Delaware was awarded one-fourth of the find, and the rest, consisting of over 20,000 artifacts, was purchased by the state for $300,000. Portions of the Hulk and most of those artifacts eventually found their way to the Zwanendale Museum in Lewis. The collections told the most accurate story ever of life and war aboard a British Navy frigate in the late 18th century. They ended up finding over 20,000 artifacts, and with those they were able to paint a very accurate picture of what life was like aboard the two-masted British warship in the 1790s. And that was exactly what film director Peter Weir intended as he brought a team of specialists to capture the historic value of those artifacts for the making of his 2003 movie, Master and Commander, starring Russell Crowe. Every effort was made in that film to be historically correct, and the artifacts from the Debrac went a long way in guaranteeing that. There were silver pieces of eight from Mexico, gold British guineas, and South American eight escudo coins known to us as Spanish doubloons. There were rings, a golden snuff box, more than a dozen dominoes, and an ivory game piece, as well as buckles and buttons, hundreds and hundreds of leather boots and shoes, a floppy woolen hat, a jar in which someone had inscribed the word ketchup, along with copper pots, brass flintlock gun locks, muskets, navigational instruments, and the list goes on. And by the way, ketchup in those days was a mushroom extract that was put on meat, according to state archivist Claudia Melson. Over 400 coins were brought up from the wreck, many of them valuable. Christie's auction house valued the findings at $275,000, not nearly enough to cover the debt that had been amassed by the owners and finders. With many salvage efforts this size, the crews are superstitious. With each mechanical failure, with each disappointment, workers grumble. Many of them attribute the problems to the restless souls who went down with the ship. Others theorize about the water witches and curses that ruin fortunes and sometimes rob searchers of their lives. We did a story on the Andrea Doria a few years ago, and that wreck has definitely claimed a number of lives. Yet the divers keep on coming. Their ultimate and very dangerous prize? A plate from the dining room of the Andrea Doria. With the wreck of the Debrac, you'll have to say that the treasure here is in the eye of the beholder. The investors lost millions. A film crew gained tremendous insight from the huge collection of artifacts. The Delaware Museums acquired a huge collection of British Royal Navy artifacts from a time when England ruled the seas. The mid-east coast of the U.S., often included in that stretch of coastline known as the Graveyard of the Atlantic, gained another legend. And all the while, the poets write, The dreamers dream and the seekers continue their never-ending search for lost fortunes. We hope you enjoyed this story about the HMS Debrac. 
Tune into our other 1001 Stories Network shows for some literary treasures ranging from popular novels to classic short stories and mysteries. And please do send us a review. We always appreciate reviews. They help new listeners find us. And here are a few recent ones for you. The first one, fantastic podcast, five stars. Like listening to old school radio shows or having a family member tell you a story. I wait weekly for new shows, and I especially love the series on Earhart, along with anything on Area 51 or Aliens. I love the show. Keep up the great work. Now from M. Grace 27, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, very enjoyable and informative. I'm going out west this summer and plan to visit the site of the Battle of the Little Bighorn. I wanted to familiarize myself with the battle a little more, so I searched for podcasts about it. Most just gave the basics, but 1001 went super in-depth. It was by far the best I've found. I've listened to those three episodes about four or five times now. I've since become a regular listener and look forward to each new episode, while also continuing to catch up on the older ones. Down from BenQ72, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, entertaining and educational. Whether driving in the car or doing chores around the house, 1001 is my go-to podcast for sometimes riveting, always informative entertainment. That one from Kentucky Patrick at Apple Podcast U.S. Thank you very much for leaving those reviews. We appreciate it greatly. We release all our new shows every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And we invite you to join us then. Until then, everyone, this is your host, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.